Hello and welcome to episode 99 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Before we get to announcements today, I would like to read a post that Justin recently put up on our website. Now, this has to do with um, some legislation that was recently passed in North Carolina, uh, which is the home of Cognitech. Um, we're a distributed company, but um, you know, our, uh, two of our founders live there, our headquarters is there, so we do have some grounding there. Um, so I'll, I'll read it out verbatim. Cognitech strongly values the rights of all citizens to equal treatment under the law. We find it disheartening that the North Carolina General Assembly would pass and our governor would sign a law that singles out LGBTQ persons for unequal treatment. The law is heartless on its face, discriminatory, and mean-spirited. We share with other companies, organizations, and individuals our dismay that North Carolina would be actively going backwards on issues of fairness and inclusion. At Cognitect, we believe that no one should be discriminated against based on gender identity or sexual orientation whatsoever, and we will continue to act on those values regardless of what the NCGA does. That's the end of the statement. Um, I just felt strongly that, uh, that I wanted this to, that statement to be included in this podcast. So I would encourage you to go and research the legislation. I'm not going to take time to discuss it here, but uh, it's certainly easy enough to find a description of what's involved in that particular uh, bill online. Um, all right, so moving on to news. Uh, so Closure West is coming up. Um, tickets are still available. Uh, that's going to be held April 15th and 16th. Uh, you can find out all sorts of information about Closure West at closurewest.org. Um, fun conference. There are, like I said, tickets still available, but they're... Uh, the last I heard are going pretty quick, so um, you definitely are going to want to go and uh, and snag one if you are planning to go. Um, don't delay. Uh, there's also still room in the Datomic training uh, that precedes the conference. That'll be on Thursday, April 14th. So um, if you're interested in learning more about Datomic, go and take a class with one of our experts um, and attend the conference right afterwards. Uh, so that'd be fun too. Um, let's see what else. I think one more thing to mention. I will mention that... Uh, the uh, amazingly named Seizure, uh, S-E-A-J-U-R-E, which is the Seattle Closure Meetup Group, uh, will be getting together on the first Thursday of each month at 7 p.m., so keep your eye out for that. Um, as the, this recording, I guess the next meeting would be April 7th. Uh, but you can certainly find out more about that group and about uh, meeting times and places at seizure.github.io, S-E-A-J-U-R-E.github.io. Um I think that's it for announcements, so we will go ahead and go on to episode, believe it or not, 99 of the Cognicast. sound to you good great okay well then let's kick it off all right uh hello everyone and welcome to the cognicast today is wednesday february 10th 2016 and with us today is a software engineer at spark fund claire alvis welcome to the show claire thank you thank you for having me i am thrilled to have you on uh we have uh met a few times at various conferences and um had a number of really interesting uh, conversations about the work you've been doing and other things, and so uh, it was a perfect time to have you on. Uh, actually, you were suggested by someone else at the company who said, oh, we, we should we should have this person, Clara, on. She looks really interesting. I'm like, I know her. We should definitely have her on. 
So that was great. It was a, it was a good conjunction. Um, but before we get too much further, we, I'm going to ask you the question that we always ask and that I warned you about. Here at the beginning of the show, we like to ask our guests to share some sort of experience of art, whatever that means to them. And uh, so you've had a chance to think about this a little bit, and I wonder yeah. what you would like to uh, share with us. I would like to talk a little bit about uh, Twitch Plays Pokemon. I don't okay. know if you're familiar with that. but uh, Those um... two things individually, yes. Together, not <laughs> Together, so much. No. Yeah. Okay, well, Twitch is kind of just a website uh, that hosts streaming content. And, oh gosh, I guess it was about a year or two ago, um, someone hosted basically an emulation of Pokemon Red on Twitch. And it was basically, you know, they, they had this, this game up on, on their stream, and the chat that goes along with the stream was basically inputting moves into this, this emulation of Pokemon Red. So it was this chat just, like, screaming, like, go, make the character go up, or make the character go left, or, you know, interact with something. And the emulation would just pick one of these things at random and execute it in, in the simulation, and you get to see what happens to the character over time. And that was really fascinating, but what was not like, I mean, it was fascinating that we actually ended up finishing Pokemon Red and a lot of other very interesting things happened. But what was most interesting to me was all of the artwork that came out of it. Because if you went to like, if you went to the, there was a subreddit dedicated to Twitch Plays Pokemon. And every time you went there, there'd be like a hundred new pieces of artwork that people had done based on like what happened on the stream yesterday. So people were just like, they were basically creating like these religious figures and like making political statements about this basically emulation of Pokemon Red. And it was just, you can Google some of the artwork that came out of that. And it was so organic, just, it was really amazing. Huh. So I actually remember hearing about this a little bit now that you mention it. And uh, it, it seemed interesting, certainly. Uh, and, and I actually was wondering for a little while when you were talking whether whether it was the the game itself that you considered art, or whether it's obviously you you chose to highlight the art that um, people created based on it. But yeah, is there an aspect of? <laughs> I just wondered. Do you think there's an aspect of art to the game itself in, in any way? Maybe. I mean, obviously, Pokemon Red itself was a work of art, but there's also kind of a reinterpretation as like you know, this emulation that just was just randomly being created. And I think that that certainly is art as well, huh. in a way. And, and so you actually, you, you played, it sounds like you said I we. did. I, I uh, yes, I did say we, intentionally. I, I was certainly one of the people, you know, screaming commands at my computer screen, <laughs> trying to get us, you know, not to release that Pokemon or, you know, to, to not fall down over that ledge that we just spent three hours trying to get up to. <laughs> so I, I mean, uh, so the art aspect is certainly interesting, but I have to say, I, I feel like I need to dwell on the game itself. Um, was it? So I mean, the game finished, so obviously it was. Yeah, an, we won. Right, and so there was enough cooperation. It reminds me of a chat room in general, right? Which is, you wonder whether one troll can spoil the whole thing. Turns out it can actually, hmm. um, and part part of the way through, the the creator of the stream uh, introduced a basically a new form of like deciding the input to the to the to the emulator um so the original method was just anarchy like anyone could say whatever they want and um just every once in a while about every 30 seconds or so or maybe more often than that but they would just pick a random 
uh, direction from from the chat. So anyone could just like intentionally try to you know release your Pokemon or just like try to intentionally make you lose the game. Um, and then halfway through, they introduced democracy. So uh, basically, Twitch chat would have to agree on like the next the next uh, input to the to the simulation. Huh. So that that was certainly interesting. I'm sure there's a distributed systems analogy in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure there is. And I'm sure we could explore it. But I think uh, there are other things that we could talk about and will talk about that are um, even more interesting. Although it's already, you know, it's pretty interesting. But anyway, well, I mean, one of the things, for instance, that I'd like you to, to talk about, and I want to make sure that we don't miss, is your work on a library called uh, Spectacular. Uh, yeah. and, and maybe we before we jump into that, it is interesting before we jump into that, um, we could talk a little bit about your your background. You actually have a pretty, in my opinion, interesting um, background. You know, a lot of people come to um, to Closure because you are a Closure developer via yeah. you know Java or Ruby. Um, and we, but we do get a few people from other language backgrounds. Not to you know pigeonhole you, but um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I I think you're one of, uh, of, of a minority um, in, in certain respects. Maybe you can fill in what I'm alluding to here. Yeah, I, I definitely came from, I guess, a different background from Racket and, and more generally just uh, Scheme and Lisp-like languages. Mm-hmm. So as I saw in the recent, uh, you know, closure, State of Closure survey, not a lot of people actually, you know, came in from existing Lisps and especially from from Racket. I believe I actually had to write in Racket on that survey. <laughs> so if you saw a write in Racket, that was that was me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it it definitely gives me a different perspective because um, you know things that I was expecting from Lisp weren't necessarily things that I you know went on to experience in in Clojure. And I think some of those are actually good, and some of them you know are lacking from from like my my experience with Racket. Well, give us a tour. I mean, we have great relationship with the with the racket folks. Um, they have awesome ideas. You know, we've had Matthew Flat on the show a couple times, and we 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 love the we love the racket communities. Um, I don't think there's any any harm in just getting your perspective. Feel free to say what you what you like and what you miss. I think that would be that'd be great to hear. Sure. Basically, as you alluded, I have a, a library that's pretty much a DSL uh, in enclosure, and I think were I were I able to write that in racket i would have had a much better experience um just because of the facilities in racket for macro writing and and being able to implement libraries uh, in in general is much much better in racket just because of the more established macros more principled macro system that they have but at the same time i i very much like closure um mostly because of the data and I think it, 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 it treats the data better uh, than, than Racket does. And I, I don't think that it's a matter of, like, one thing in specific. It's just, like, especially, like, the reader macros uh, or the reader uh, syntax for, for, like, sets and maps and stuff in Clojure. It just, uh, it makes it a lot easier to, to write and understand and have faith in your data. So I think those are the two the two biggest differences I see between the two languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I uh, that's been my broad experience. Although the Racket one for me is from the outside. Um, I did find it interesting at RacketCon. You were there. Was it this year? Yeah. And I forget the researcher's name. She presented. Um, she's been working on some of the immutable um, 
well, actually quite a substantial portion of the immutable data types that Clojure has, persistent immutable collections, uh, but for Racket. Uh, trying to remember her name. I think I might have left. I didn't get to say for that entire Racket con. I don't think I saw that talk. Okay, in any event, so it's a, so you know, good ideas are flowing both directions, and uh, the yeah. the uh, persistent and you know, Rich is the first to admit he didn't invent the uh, persistent <laughs> immutable collections, but uh, uh, we certainly have a, a good um, implementation of them. Uh, but it looks like uh, you know other languages are adopting that well. I wonder if you could. So this is a question that I've asked you know uh, Matthew Flat a few times, and every time I get a little bit closer to understanding. Uh, but it's certainly something that comes up again and again, namely that the macro system in Racket is is really great and is a huge uh, win, and and you know it's a thing that makes the that's like a huge asset to the language. So, yeah. and you just mentioned it yourself. So I wonder if you could explain <laughs> to someone who hasn't done racket, um, what it is about the macro system in racket that is so great and, uh, what maybe even what you think it would look like if we had that enclosure. Um, I think my favorite part about the, the racket macro system is the things that you don't have to do and not the things that it actually enables you to do. Um, because things like, there's a there's a form called syntax parse, which is kind of like you know you would that would be like def macro, like an improvement on def def macro enclosure, um, where syntax parse kind of just lets you just say what your syntax is, and lets you just say what it expands to, and it kind of handles or at least lets you express in a more clean way what should happen if things were to fail. Um, so if your macro like failed to parse the syntax or something, it makes it very easy to say what exactly should be parsed and what should be output to the user if it doesn't kind of expand very cleanly. Um, and that is, uh, that's probably the biggest thing that I, that I miss from Mac records macros. Whereas in closure, it just kind of like, it basically just treats it like a function, right? Like you get the syntax in as if it was just, you know, another piece of data and you basically have to do all the manipulations and, and parsing and, and matching and error checking and everything. You have to do that all yourself inside inside the code. Like Clojure doesn't give you anything, any tools for that other than, you know, the tools from the general language itself. So mm -hmm. that's probably what I miss the most. Yeah, and you mentioned error handling, and that, of course, is one of the big consequences of that is... Uh... Um, unless you do a bunch of work yourself in Clojure, yep. you wind up with, you know, because of the way macros expand at run, uh, compile time and, and execute later, you know, mm -hmm. you can wind up with errors that don't really, that don't really relate directly to what the, to what the uh, developer wrote down, right? Yep. To, rather yeah. to the expansion. Yeah, yeah. So this is stuff that, that um, Chris Hauser gave a talk, oh gosh, I think it was almost three years ago now at, um, uh, at Closure Conj, um, and uh, and then actually similar, I think, to what uh, Colin Fleming talked about, just this most recent one with yeah. uh, work his work around macros. Huh. Okay, interesting. I actually went up to him afterwards and and talked about syntax parse. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a nice guy, and I'm sure you had good input for him because every time <laughs> I've talked to you, you've always said smart things. So, um, so this so this actually leads very well, I think, to talking about spectacular. I mean, obviously, you have a background. Um, you know, in, in Racket. Um, and I, it sounds like you were using that experience to help you write this library that is about, well, I'll let you say what it's about. So, <laughs> so Spectacular. Yeah. Uh, so the intention of Spectacular is to sit in between Clojure and uh, Datomic, uh, 
Should I explain what Datomic is? Would your viewers know? <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, I think we'll assume that they do, and uh, we, okay. have, we have a lovely website that they can check out if not. So I, you have uh, so yes. many interesting things to say. We will leave space for them to explore that on their own should they need to. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it sits in between, and the intention is to kind of give you a safer, and this is the catch line, the safer and more convenient uh, place to live. Um, it kind of gives you better interactions between Clojure and Datomic. Um and so, you know, that's twofold. I want to kind of add an extra specification over datomic schema that lets you say more interesting things about the relationships between the datums, uh, mostly typed, uh, making sure that the, the, uh, the actual fields inside datomic entities actually make sense uh, relative to some kind of grander schema. Um, and then if you do that specification, like if you take the time to, you know, write down these, these types for your, your datomic entities, then it'll give you a lot of really, uh, nice API functions to create those, to update those, to query them, um, kind of in a more, uh, succinct, uh, way than, than just raw datomic lets you do. Yeah. So raw datomic, as you say, <laughs> the schema, the... The schema is, um, I'm using air quotes around this word, just specification of the <laughs> attributes, right? So yes. that's the kind of the moral equivalent of, not, a, not an exact analogy, but the moral equivalent of a column in a, in a relational mm -hmm. database. And so there's really no, I, I think what you've done in part is to do the thing people always want to do, which is say, well, I have this notion of, you know, an entity type, right? Like a person mm -hmm. has this collection of attributes Whereas, you know, Datomic would let you say, well, you can talk about name and you can talk about address, mm -hmm. but we don't really give you a way to say that, you know, there's a thing in the database that has both a name and an address and cannot have a shoe size yep. right, or whatever. So, um, so is that, is that a fair assessment of part of what you've done? Yeah. So it lets you basically define, uh, it's called def spec and it lets you define, you could say, define your person. And, you know, it's well understood what, a per what, what, uh, what fields uh, a person has or what, what attributes of a person you want to express. So you would say, well, it can have, you know, your name and your address, as you say. And then if you had a separate entity type, like a car or something like that, you say, well, my cars can have wheels. If you interact with your database with Spectacular, it will basically prevent you from ever putting a wheel like directly onto one of your person entities or putting, you know, a, a, an arm or something from your person entity onto, onto your car. So, I, I mean, obviously you wrote this for a reason and we mentioned briefly <laughs> that you work at uh, spark fund. And so I, you know, I, I actually don't think I've talked to you about the history of this thing so much. So what was the genesis uh -huh. of this? What was it about your work where you're just like, well, we really need to have this thing. Um, I think it was, well, basically, so Spark Fund handles, uh, we, we have an engine that handles a bunch of financial transactions. So we're interested in modeling um, kind of complex business uh, like agreements and relationships and then all of the, the actual movements of money between those entities. And we kind of wanted an extra layer of sanity that makes sure that all of the things that we're storing about these relationships and actual, you know, movements of money are typed according to this kind of very strict uh, type schema. So that was kind of the the motivation behind the library was wanting to add an extra level of confidence when we interacted with the database that's holding all these very sensitive and, uh, you know, 
uh, critical pieces of information. So, and, and when you say type, you actually are making use of, so there's a couple things there, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think you know at least the two that I'm thinking of, so maybe you could go into that a bit. Yeah, uh, so Spectacular basically gives you, um, it gives you a core type right off the bat. So if you define, you know, what your person is, and it also give you a person that is a, a core typed type that you can use for, you know, static type checking. Um, and then it also give you this uh, a predicate that'll let you uh, like, that you can use uh, for prismatic schema. Um, so if you are more of a runtime checking person, then you can use those those predicates with prismatic schema. So no matter you know what what your relationship is with types, we hope we have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're using this in production at uh, Sparkfund. Yep. yep. Uh, to great success, I think it's it's given us a lot of confidence in refactoring our, our engine code that we never that we wouldn't really have if we if we didn't have this extra layer of uh, of typed interaction. So I mean, I, I gotta ask one of the things I think people could look at this and say, oh, this is an ORM, and I think that's um, always a tricky classification to make on any library like this. But it is a it is an interface layer between database and the code that um, talks to the database. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that historically there have been, my experience of, of other ORMs, I haven't used Spectacular, but my experience of other or- ORMs has generally not been good. <laughs> right, <laughs> like I find, that, I find that the big issue is that I lose control of the queries that I'm making, right, the way, mm-hmm. I lose control of the interaction, and that it matters, right, um, it, 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 that it, it uh for instance, like really, really silly SQL will get created for me um, in something like, oh gosh, I'd have to bring my mind back to like 15 years ago when I was still using, you know, C sharp and doing this sort of thing. Um, so how how have you avoided those problems? Or maybe, you know, maybe you don't have that same experience. Maybe you're like, no, I really do want that abstraction. But what, what's your what's your answer to that um, observation? Uh, I think my answer in general is that you you're, that spectacular itself right now probably isn't all that great for probably exactly those reasons. Um, what I've you know come to decide over the last couple of, of months is that it has exactly that problem um, where if it doesn't fit exactly into like this this query language that I've created, I have no other option except to then drop all the way down back to Datomic, and now kind of I've given up a lot of the freedom that I that I would have had if I had used just Datomic's schema and, let, and actually, you know, went, went to create a Datomic schema that I would have created uh, not thinking about the types, and then things just become a lot harder. So is this a problem that you've run into, or it's just when you're looking at it, thinking about the design, you're like, you know what, I could see that being an issue. Yeah, I, I actually both. Um, there's been a lot more times recently uh, where I've I've deliberately chosen to use just the Datomic API, not Spectacular's API, like when I'm writing in production, um, and also when I'm thinking about the design of Spectacular. Um, it's it's not. There's no. I think I would express it as saying there's no like little increments between the Datomic API and Spectacular's API. Mm. It's either, it fits into this very, very strict um, 
kind of uh, syntax for like the queries, for example, or you have to drop all the way back down to to just doing datomic. And I think there's something in between that kind of could fill this gap where, yeah, it doesn't fit into the very succinct, cute, syntactic sugar kind of thing, but you also still get a lot of the benefits that you should get because you wrote down, like you wrote down the spec, so you shouldn't lose everything. Do you, do you think, um, cause one of the things that, that is right. So obviously I've, I've, I've seen that cause I mentioned it. Mm-hmm. One of the problems that, that you had in old style ORMs or <laughs> I guess the ones that I used to use, which I suppose makes them old style given when, <laughs> when I was doing this, um, you know, is that the the query, the result of this mapping is essentially a string, right? Like the thing that you need mm-hmm. to send to the database is a string. And effectively, it's opaque. Now, you can do things like parse it. But, but you know, if you're working with SQL, at least, it doesn't really have, or at least when I, the libraries that I was using didn't expose, I shouldn't say it doesn't have, didn't expose mm-hmm. any kind of like a regular structure that I could work with. Um, whereas with Datomic you know, the query, the native format for the query is, in fact, data. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wonder whether when you think about how to solve that problem, you're like, well, the fact that it's data is, is something that's going to enable me to to maybe, uh, hopefully, find a um, a way to pull these two things apart and still get all of the utility of each of them independently or the, um, you know, pull them together and get the, the power of, uh, you know, combinatorial explosion, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That That's actually exactly where I was planning on drawing the solution from, because the query right now, uh, the query that Spectacular gives you is just a giant macro, right? And so <laughs> the actual query syntax is not data. It's, it's I mean, it's syntax, and it's, it's uh, it, we, I basically create, you know, a, a, a query that is data at compile time, but you as the user have no access to that. I mean, you could you could get access to it via macro expansion, but it's basically, you don't have control over it. Whereas I think what, what I kind of lost when I, when I moved from Datomic's query up to the spectacular was, that, was exactly that, the data. And so I think there is a way, <laughs> there's obviously a way, I just haven't written it yet, or I haven't thought of it yet, um, to get all the benefits of spectacular, but still have that query be data that the user can then have in their hand and then it can be composable and they can inspect it and they can optimize it if they feel like it. If Spectacular has done something silly, um, like created an or, uh, like a giant or that it doesn't really need, then the user can see that and and make optimizations if, if they want. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a phrase that we've thrown around before um, uh, is uh, data function macro, right? Like mm-hmm. there's this sort of I don't know. It's it's not really a law. I mean, we've talked before about flipping it on its head is is sometimes the right thing, but but certainly there's this sort of uh, path or hierarchy, something where we say, okay, we prefer data to functions, functions to macros, and I I'm just thinking about this problem and going, well, you know, you went with macros, obviously, you know, you mm-hmm. had some reason for doing that, and now you're thinking about playing with um, the idea of um, of data. I guess I'm just wondering, like, do you think if you make that refactoring, will you find yourself, you know, um, removing or lessening your reliance on on macros somehow? Does that make any sense? Uh, Probably. Um, Basically, the main motivation for uh, for that query to be a macro right now 
is the type. Um, so if you write a spectacular query, it will actually uh, do all the correct casts to actually type that in core typed. So you could have a query, which is, you know, obviously an improvement over Datomic, where you basically, yeah, you get back data, but you're not really sure what it is. Whereas you can actually just write it directly in core types and have that query be statically checked alongside, you know, the, the surrounding code. But the fact is, you don't actually need most of the query in order to determine that type. Like, you basically only need the find variables to find out, like, that the actual return type. So there still is going to have to be some macro aspect of it if we want to retain that behavior, but the rest of it can just be a function. Like as soon as you figure out what the type should be, then you can hand it off to a function that will do, you know, all the good things that functions do rather than have it all be like a giant macro. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, interesting. Um, what were the challenges that you had when you were developing this? I mean, uh, so obviously you mentioned that um, you, you were used to a different uh, uh, and arguably more powerful um, yeah. macro system. <clears throat> what, what else was hard about making this thing? Um, probably. Um, so I was coming to this language when I first started without having a good understanding of Datomic as a whole. Uh, I had a very good understanding of what we were using Datomic for and what, what uses we, uh, you know, in our production engine wanted out of this library. Um, and so the initial versions, versions of Spectacular that I released were very much geared towards our own use cases. Um, and through, you know, over time, I had to kind of broaden... Uh, uh, brought, brought in the, the use cases of Spectacular by, you know, doing all the research into, okay, Datomic is this thing that I'm working with now. Why do people like Datomic? And I had to kind of not only understand all these reasons why, Datom why people like Datomic, but also how this library can help them uh, and, and still keep the things that they like. And obviously, like I'm like I have just been talking about over the last ten minutes, I think I kind of missed that point, and so now it's being very it's very difficult to kind of reinterpret that or look at look at all that information again and come up with like a different design that is hopefully uh, more more in line with with why why people like and why Datomic is 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 uh, so good. Just to make sure I understand, I th the thing you're mm -hmm. referring to is um, is the query syntax, or is there some other feature of Datomic that you feel you've you've hidden from people? Um, uh, for example, we we didn't make any use of pull ah. syntax, um, and the the way that I allow you to do uh, updates, uh, like with those those cute little update functions, is not very composable. Um, it base it doesn't let you do any kind of batch operation, so uh, you basically have no choice but to kind of use a low level function to get the data out and then do the composition yourself. Uh, there's no way to like specify that I want you know all ten thousand of these things to happen on the same transaction, for example. 
Mm-hmm. So do you, I mean, is there, is there, well, I mean, maybe you haven't figured it out yet, but do you feel like there's a good way to do that? Cause I think, you yes. know, one of the, you do. Okay. Cause it's good. Because I think one of the things that happens sometimes is that, um, you know, we get, we get attached to an idea. So in this case, I, I could say one of the ideas, I think there's a couple in here is, um, providing, uh, you know, core typed and some, to some extent schema, uh, mm-hmm. prismatic schema information around my entities in the atomic and, you know, preserving that as I move the data back and forth between my, um, my data processing layer and the, and the database. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, you f- I feel like sometimes we kind of get all into the idea and then we do more and more things to preserve that idea, e- even though, and I'm not saying this is the case. It sounds like you've thought of a way it's not, but, but I feel like certainly I do this where I'm like, okay, well, I've got to keep that. Even when keeping, by keeping it, I'm giving up other things to the point where at some point the costs outweigh the benefits. Uh I mean, hopefully you understand what I'm saying, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, but it sounds like you, you feel like that's not the case. I'm, I'm curious to hear um, what you have in mind. Yeah, I think, you know, I haven't had a lot of time to think about this, but uh, in the time that I have spent thinking about this, I don't think there's anything fundamental that we've lost, uh, that was a result of that decision to to make things uh, well typed or at least a little bit more typed than they were before. Um, I think all of the things that I that I've talked about here about uh, about the loss functionality uh, in between are kind of lost by by using spectacular instead of atomic is not a result of that decision of of making things typed. It's just more of a uh, kind of API. Like the API is just not quite right. And it's not, it's not because of anything that has to do with uh, making these things typed. Mm-hmm. I think we can have both. I, think I, I can have my cake and eat it, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I haven't thought about it anywhere near as much as you have. But, you know, it, it seems to me like what you've done is said, well, look, you know, um, Datomic certainly has a notion of entities, but it doesn't have a notion of entity type. And ignoring mm-hmm. things for a moment like polymorphism, you know, if you just say, look, this entity is going to have this set of required attributes and this set of optional attributes. And when I pull it back over here, I'm going to, I'm going to preserve that. Mm-hmm. That does not seem to me to be a fundamentally like really strict requirement. Cause exactly. if your data is shaped that way anyway, now if you have more flexible data, right? If you have a, mm-hmm. if you have data schema where you're like, look, I really do have a pile of attributes and they can in fact apply very loosely to entities. Absolutely. Then I could see maybe that, you know, an approach like that wouldn't be, particularly um, the impedance mismatch would be high, but, uh-huh. but I think a lot of da- programs are, are not that way. That's my, that's my hope and my understanding. Um, basically what that would look like is like a single spec with, you know, a hundred fields. And that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's not really going to help you. Um, not sure why you made your database like that, but I, that's certainly not the kind of database that I, I want to support or I have a mind of supporting. But yeah, I agree. I think, I think most, or at least the databases that I've had experience with would fit into the into the category of databases that I would like to support with Spectacular. And I think if your database looks like the kind of database that I can support with Spectacular, then it should be easy to interact with it using Spectacular's API. And I think that's that's the part of it that's broken down right now. Like, yes, we can represent your database. Yes, there's a spec for it. Yes. But if you want to <laughs> query it, just use plain old datomic is basically the answer that we have for you right now, which mm-hmm. shouldn't be shouldn't be the answer. It should be you can use Spectacular to do this. Yeah, or maybe some like you were saying. I mean, I think I, I think I am understanding better what you were saying earlier, where 
um, maybe like there's got to be some sort of nice intersection between look, I still have everything that uh, data log gives me, mm-hmm. but when I'm done, what I have is um, maybe um, at least at least optionally uh, a, a pile of values that I can treat as these um, instances of these types that I've defined. Right, I'm querying for people. So let me write the uh-huh. data log and then at the end I've got things that I can interact with in the same way that I interact with people when I when I create them and do the other things that I do programmatically with the types I've defined through the through the def specs. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So you know it's funny though like I was I I I just said okay yeah I I get um how most applications are like that but then at the same time I'm thinking to myself well but then why do we like closures maps so much right like because there's another really open uh, data type, mm. right? I mean, you think about, you know, um, you know, and obviously core typed has syntax. Schema has syntax for saying, yes, this is a map, but we're going to talk about what keys are or must be in it, can be in it, cannot be in it, that type of thing. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I think there's, um, you know, you one could make an observation and say, well... In Clojure, we have this great data type to map. It's it's open. It's essentially you know flexible. It's very untyped, and we're happy with it. We like it, right? And and in some sense, it's um, it's kind of it's kind of that other type of program, right? Like in other words, we're always in always frequently writing that other type of program where we don't really care what the data is, or it's very very open, or you have you know it's it's like we joke, right? Like if you write um, if you write Java the way that you write Clojure. You type everything as object, right? Uh-huh. Like, I mean, I know, I know that's that's pushing huh. the analogy very, very hard. But, but do you see what I'm saying? Is that we, we actually like this flexibility, and so to some extent, I'm like, well, are we moving into a regime where where we're going back away from the thing that we um, demonstrate our affinity for every day in closure, right? By working <laughs> with these maps, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I I haven't thought of that before, but you make a very good point. Um, and of course, I of course I use maps. I use maps everywhere, and I'm trying to think of why. Why do I use these kind of unstructured maps? <laughs> I don't have an answer either, by the way. Yeah. it's just an interesting question that came to my mind while we were talking about this. I think they're very. Um, I can make them, and then I can use them, and then I can just throw them away. I think that's what I, what, what I like about it. You know, like mm. if I need, if I suddenly just need for efficiency or for, you know, ease of expression, if I just suddenly need a mapping from friendly identifiers to numbers or something like that, then yeah, I just, I just make a map and then I, I use, I use get to, to get the information and then it's gone. But I think if I ever wanted to store that or if I wanted that to persist in some way, I would make a record instead of a map. Because I would want to, I would want to have, or if not a record, at least some sort of predicate or like a, or core types that that would say that this map is actually as I expected. If I wanted it to persist in some way or have some sort of you know level of confidence about what's actually in this map. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I wonder. This is something that I've been thinking about a little bit, and it was a discussion I had with I'm forgetting his name, someone at um, RacketCon. Mm-hmm. And and they they were a big fan of uh, typed racket, which you know, as people that have listened to the show are aware, is was the big inspiration for Ambrose Ambrose writing, uh, yeah, uh, core typed. Um, but we were speculating as to whether you know, given that he's a fan of dynamic languages, but he still likes the the typed, um, you know, the typing that uh, typed racket provides. 
uh, we were wondering whether there's not some mode of programming wherein you use dynamic programming to very quickly and easily explore the problem space. Mm-hmm. But then you codify the, the constructs that you discover that are, you know, once they kind of settle down a bit um, through types. And, and I wonder sometimes whether, like I've always meant to explore, what would it mean to write a program where I start out with no types and then add them in over time? And I know lots of people have done this, but I, I haven't really. I've either, you know, said I'm going to try core typed and gone in and write the, written the program type from the beginning mm-hmm. or said forget it I'm going to use <laughs> none of that and written my programs the way I normally write closure program which is without any any type information but I've never actually tried to to create a cycle over the long term where where I introduce types as concepts make themselves evident as something that's going to be long term and you use the word persistent in this case meaning database mm-hmm. persistence and I wonder whether there's some sort of analogy to be to be had to that concept there? So, I mean, I guess the way that I've been taught or the way that I did teach people to kind of approach the empty buffer problem was to think about your data first. Like, don't don't just start writing. And that's, of course, you know, what How to Design Programs teaches, which we taught at Northeastern, um, to think about your data first. And so the first thing that I would write if I was faced with the empty buffer problem wouldn't necessarily be a type, like in the way that we understand types, like a like a typed annotation or something like that. It might just be a comment that says what my data looks like, like what, what keys my maps have, you know, for example. And then I would design all the functions inside of that with, a, with, with that very good understanding of what my data looks like, which is, it, I, and I'm definitely not saying that you start writing typed annotations because that's, that's distinctly what I don't want to do. But then, you know, as time passes and those functions change, you want to have something that isn't written in a comment so that you remember to go back and update, you know, what you said your data was if your data changes. And so that's where types really come in it, uh, come into it for me. So yes, I don't, I don't want them. I want them to be written in a comment as I'm doing this, you know, these fast prototyping that people love dynamic languages for and stuff. But then once the code sits there for a while, and maybe that's what I mean by persistence, once the code sits there hmm. for a while itself, you know, you want to be able to say, hand that artifact off to someone else and have them be able to understand the types of data that this, this code is working on. And so if you still have your, your type declaration in a comment, Nothing's keeping that up to date, you know, like maybe that's still the first, maybe you haven't changed that since you, you had your empty buffer. And since then your data has, you know, evolved and become, uh, it's changed a little bit as you've, as you've written these functions. And now you're handing this code to someone that is looking at this comment. And it's like, this is not the data that you're using anymore. And if you had that written down in a type, that was statically checked that, you know, you couldn't hand this code off to someone if it didn't type check, then you'd go back and you'd update your understanding. You'd, you'd change the type annotation to actually, to be more correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's pretty much what, what I use types for, I think. And does that, does that extend, is that analogy exact with respect to spectacular? I mean, you know, whenever we cross system boundaries and yeah. certainly, you know, going from your data processing code into the database is crossing a system boundary. Is there anything about that idea that in, in your mind breaks down or changes? 
That's really interesting. Spectacular certainly wouldn't let you do that. <laughs> you would basically have to have, have your specification ahead of time. And any time that you tried to interact with the database in a way that didn't agree with that specification, it will basically prevent you. It will, it will entirely prevent you from being able to interact with the database if, say, you have a, you know, the wrong keyword in a map somewhere that, that goes against the specification. I wonder what it would look like to kind of have a, a, a no-check, if you will, mm. um, equivalent for spectacular that at, at, like, like, uh, like CoreType has. Yeah, it's a little different though, right? Because so for people that aren't familiar, uh, no check just means, hey, <laughs> I know I said this thing is a foo, but don't don't make me don't keep me honest, right? Don't make me prove yeah, it. Yeah, don't make me prove it. And, and so it, it's a little bit different because, of course, core typed is an entirely entirely static, right? Like it's just mm-hmm. going to look at your program and go, yeah, I think you're good. And um, presumably, spectacular is not it's not doing code analysis at all. It's you know it's like runtime, right? Except for you know the the little the little bits of a query that do expand at compile time, it's yeah, it's absolutely runtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, right, right no, I, I don't, I mean uh, that. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I I'm I'm gonna be fascinated mm-hmm. to hear what you uh, come up with on that one. <laughs> yeah, what would that look like? I don't know. I mean, I guess it would just have to let you interact with the database, and it would tell you, you know, maybe m- maybe your spec is a little out of date, but I'm gonna let you do it anyway. <laughs> huh. And that's interesting, especially in a database like uh, Datomic, where we keep everything, right? So it's going to yeah. let you make a mistake, right? It let you. I mean, it depends on your definition of mistake, I suppose, but it's going to let you say something nonsensical, uh-huh. right? Or at least with respect to your spec, uh-huh. and put it in the database, and then there it is, right? Yeah. Now, now that can have huge value, and it's actually it's actually very much intentional. Like we 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 frequently uh, Cognitech we frequently talk about the benefit of recording your mistakes, right? Like people are always like, well, how do I get rid of these things? You know, I, I wrote some bad code and it put it in the database. And we're like, you know, you don't, you don't actually want to cover your tracks. I mean, you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to shred the documents just because there was a typo, right? Put a new document in, right? But don't, don't Absolutely. burn down the building because somebody spilled some ink, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's really interesting. Cool. Well, um, so spectacular is super interesting, and I, I can tell that you've put a lot of thought into this. And uh, yeah. like any really good library, like every time I've talked to an author who, maybe not every time, there there are rare occasions, I suppose, where one works on a problem and it just it just it just beautifully lays down. Like you find the <laughs> one solution, right? And it's like okay, great. And and the hallmark of that usually is. The person stops working on it because it's done, uh-huh. right? Which is which is in the open source world, of course, is a sign of um, of of something being low quality if you stop working on it. But of course, in yeah. this case, it's like no, no, I figured it out. Here it is. It's a gem. It's done. <laughs> um, uh, so, I, but but of course, there's lots of other libraries where people are like, I'm I'm still, you know, these good ideas take you know years usually to to sort out. So I'm 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 fascinated to hear. Uh, that the, your thinking is evolving, um, that you're, you know it's already useful, but that you can see places where you can improve it. But I don't want to spend our entire time together uh, <laughs> talking about spectacular. Um, we can, um, but I but I want to make sure that I that I ask you what else is up because you know I, I suspect you're one of those people who have uh, several irons in the fire, and that you know even the ones I haven't heard of are as fascinating as the as the rest. So I, I don't know. I guess it's an unfair ex- expectations, but I'm wondering if, what else you've been up to. And uh, oh, geez, like, yeah. Uh, what's what's caught your I interest really, lately? I 
can't really talk more about the software. I'm, I'm, I admit that I'm not working as much on Spectacular as I would like to be. Uh, I've, I've kind of switched focus mainly towards our, our engine uh, at, at SparkFund uh, and our end of the year reporting. What happened in 2015? That's probably where most of my focus is right now. Sure. Well, what do you do for fun outside of work? Oh, let's see. I'm a big gamer, honestly. Ah, well, I could tell when you when you said uh, what was the phrase I think you used. It was well, Pokemon Red is a classic, obviously. Obviously, obviously was the keyword. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you like? I've been playing. I play uh, MMOs mostly, um, but also city builders. Uh, what I've been playing most recently is a game called Cities Skylines, which is kind of the spiritual successor to kind of what we all wanted Sim City to be. Um, I've been playing Sim City since I think like. Uh, SimCity 2000, I think was my, my first game. So I've, I've had a long, long experience, many hours put in just just building cities in the Sim world. That's cool. What, what do you like about it? I mean, I, uh, I've done a few of those things. I actually am, people, have, I won't bore you with the details. I'm into flight simulators, so there's an aspect of simulation in my current interest in gaming. But uh, what, what is it that you like about the, uh, the, the city builders? I think, I think it's mostly the problem solving, honestly. Um, so, you know, you, you basically have the empty buffer problem, right? You, you have this empty city that's kind of connected to a, a highway uh, in, in city skylines. And immediately people want to live there, obviously. So you zone a bunch of, you know, residential areas. And then obviously they need some place to work. So you zone industrial. And then they need a place to, to, to sell their goods. So you zone a bunch of commercial. And then... You know, obviously you, you need power and water. And so you have like this little, this, it's basically just like, you know, an interconnected just ecosystem of different constraints and demands of your population. And it's kind of, the problem is being able to scale that up to a point where, you know, your city covers the entire map, um, but everything is still kind of well balanced in that. You have enough power, but not too much power. You have enough water, but not too much water because it's expensive. And you, your people can actually you know, get to the different places that they need to get to, but traffic isn't so bad. So you don't want everyone to be going all to the same area at the same time or else they'll have this giant traffic jam. And of course, as I'm sitting here explaining it, I'm like, this, this is computer science. I'm just... <laughs> this is computer science in a different form. Sure. So I'm curious. So I've actually um, gotten into flight sims enough where I can have conversations with people that hold a pilot's license wow. and I'm not totally ignorant. <laughs> um, and uh, do you find yourself with an appreciation for for people that do city planning for real? Absolutely. Absolutely. I find myself evaluating like on ramps. I'm like this on ramp. <laughs> this on ramp isn't long enough, and it's causing traffic to back up onto this road. And you know, if they were to reposition this on ramp so that I had more time to gather speed before getting on the highway, it wouldn't back up onto this. Like I've had these conversations in my brain with myself because I've played City Skyline. It's a, but I've been curious when you do that. Are you also thinking, but it would cost yes, three million dollars? Exactly. So there's all these constraints. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's oh. really interesting. Is it, so have you ever run into somebody who does that sort of work for a I living cannot. and been able to have a... Okay. I would love to. I would love yeah. to. If, I, if anyone's listening and knows about city planning, <laughs> I would love to talk to you. Cool. We'll have them tweet at you. <laughs> um, well, that's very, very cool. Uh, so I know what I was going to ask you. So have you 
done the thing that I think a lot of us who have the ability to create software do, which is taken this hobby or maybe one of your other hobbies and, and made <laughs> software for it. Uh, you, you know, like for, like a SimCity plugin or maybe just like a website where you compute or, or even a sp- or spreadsheets or anything like that. Cause I find myself doing this. Sort yeah, of thing. I absolutely, I absolutely have done that. Um, the only one that comes to mind right now is I played a, a, an MMO called Wildstar a few years ago that ended up, you know, not being the amazing success we all hoped it would be. But uh, for the months that I did play it, I actually made an add-on um, in Lua uh, that kind of I saw that there was there was no there was no add-on that anyone had already created um, to. <laughs> basically buy and sell commodities on the auction house. Uh, And I wanted to make a lot of, uh, I think the currency was called platinum, so that I could pay for my game time for free. And this, these add-ons didn't exist. So I actually, I I wrote one and, you know, released it on, on uh, curse, which is the, you know, the, the way that we share these add-ons. So yes, yes, I have done that. So did did you make a lot of money? Were you like I a, got a, um I did make a lot of in-game currency and I got uh one $5 donation for my for my time. Sounds about right. <laughs> cool. Actually, I think that might be changing a little bit. I feel like maybe it's just me. I don't know. I feel like people are a little bit more willing to um give money for software if they find useful and yeah. there there's more of a culture around you know, donations and and a, a willingness to give even small amounts, or maybe especially small amounts. Yeah, um, you see that a lot on Twitch, which, which I talked about. Um, mm-hmm. There, you know, you can subscribe to to channels with with uh, streamers whose whose content you like, and it's I think it's a five dollar donation every month, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen lots of people willing to do to just give five dollars to 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 that uh, to that cause, and. There was one success story also in in City Skylines. One of the um, one of the people who designed buildings for the original SimCity games, um, I forget his name. That's horrible of me. But he set up a Patreon um, that every time he came out with a new building or something like that, he would uh, people agree to give him money, um, and that that also worked very well for him, uh, if I understand correctly. So yeah, people are definitely willing to at least part with some some small amount of money for these good content creators. I love to see that. Yeah, it's very cool actually. You love it when somebody makes something yeah. for something you love in what feels like maybe a small community, and uh, and then they get they get rewarded. That's always kind of gratifying somehow. Yeah. Well, um, we're kind of starting to to draw to near the end of our our, our time. We should probably wind down and let you okay. get back to work. Um, but I want to make sure we leave a little time. If there's anything else that you'd like to talk about, if if not, you know, that's cool. Um, I think we definitely have to have you back. I think it's not your work. I mean, just spectacular alone. I, it sounds like you've got at least three or four interesting ideas you're going to explore, and I'd love to hear how they how they come yeah. along over the next uh, next months or whatever. So uh, anyway, was there anything else that we should hit before uh, before we start to wind I down? I think we covered all the things that I wanted to talk about. Oh, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. <laughs> uh, I do have one more question yeah. for you, though, um, as you've been forewarned, yep. which uh, we always ask our guests to um, – to give a bit of advice, actually not necessarily to give a bit of advice. It's uh, I like to say share because it might not be advice that they're necessarily handing out to the audience, although often it is, and, and usually very good at that. But 
you know, maybe it's something that someone gave you some advice once and it was specific to you, but it was great. Anyway, just love to ask you to share a little bit of advice uh, of whatever kind. Yeah. Um, I think what I really want to say is, of course, I didn't come up with this, but, you know, don't ever be afraid to say you don't know something. That is the single best piece of advice that I think I've gotten my entire career. And I can't tell you who told me at first or, you know, who told me at last, but every single day I find, you know, a reason to say, you know, I don't understand what you just said. I don't understand what that acronym stands for. You know, I don't understand what you're talking about. Can you please explain it to me? And the follow-up to that would be surround yourself with people that don't look down on you when you say mm. that. Because you want you want people around you that are also willing to explain these things to you. And I think those those two things together, just please do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. I, I love it. Uh, well, absolutely fascinating conversation with you. Unsurprising to me is I have been fortunate enough to have several such conversations with you previously, but I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day-to-day to come on and, uh, and speak with me where I can share it with uh, the rest of our listeners. So thank you so much for coming on today. No it's been great. And I look forward to speaking with you again sometime I'd soon. And to, to keep my eye on... Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. And uh, we'll keep our eye on Spectacular. Of course, we'll make the link available to everybody, uh, but I'm sure if they search for Spectacular Datomic, they'll go straight yep. to it. So anyway, I think we will go ahead and close it down there. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Claire Alvis on Twitter at Chickadee. That's C-H-C-K-A-D-E-E. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. <laughs>